Hey everybody, welcome back to the Row Hunting Resources Podcast. Today I want to have a conversation with you uh, about something that's been on my mind here recently, and that's going to be if you want to purchase property for hunting. Now, before we dive into it, this is going to be a style of podcast that I am going to label uh, off the cuff, and this podcast is going to be off the cuff. And what that means is there's going to be some times where I'm doing something and my mind is wrapped up in a topic or or a, a task or something's going on. And then all of a sudden my brain just, just jumps all in on ideas that should be shared. And so I'm just going to literally drop what I'm doing, walk into the studio, hit record and just go. I might have no notes, I might have minimal notes, uh, and I just scratched, literally just scratched a couple pencil notes on the back of a, a sales receipt. I mean, literally, I just, off the back of a, a, a napkin, quote unquote, um, for this one. But it's, it is, it's just going to be off the cuff. There's there's very little prepa- preparation. Um, it's just me, my, my brain going. And so I hope it's going to share some good information for you, get you to think about some things. And then if there's something in there that just ended up being confusing or you want to dive into more, all right, just let me know and, and we can talk about it. Either I can do another podcast and talk about it or you and I can set up a time and talk about it, whatever. We, we'll do something. But but these series, the series I'm going to call Off the Cuff, that that's what it is. So just understand, I may be stumbling over my words. I may have to pause a little bit and kind of uh, frame my thoughts and I might get off on rabbit trails or rabbit holes and I don't know we'll see but anyway this happens so many times while I'm out here working that I think it just needs to happen and today it actually it, it needs to happen all right so for a variety of reasons over since I've been out here in northwest Kansas there have been there have there's been cause for me to be involved with folks or people have asked me to chime in on my opinions or they've flat out hired me to go out and, and consult for them to look at properties they were interested in buying. They're, you, they're, for whatever reason, uh, maybe it's the market, maybe it's just a, a demand, sorry, maybe it's just a demand for high quality hunting places, but there is a demand for a certain subset of people that want to purchase their own place, their own property for hunting. All right. And if you're going to do that, the thing that I have seen a number of times is people going, either they purchased a property and then they get out on the landscape and they don't, they didn't realize what they were actually purchasing was not what they thought they were purchasing. And, or I've been able to go out ahead of time and look at a property for the prospective buyer. And then I've been able to give them some feedback and they're like, oh, holy moly, I didn't I didn't perceive that based off of Google Earth or the pictures or whatever or the sale bill from the, the realty agency or the, the realtor. So, and the, the, the things that I saw that they did not perceive were actually a factor on whether or not they were going to buy the land and, and or at least gave them an idea of, okay, if, if I buy this land, this is the work I'm going to have to put into it. And this is the reality of, of the, of the land that I'm looking at purchasing. And then there's other times when someone would make an offer to purchase a piece of ground. And then I'm like, okay, well that's fine. But 
what you don't understand is me living out here, I know what goes on around the neighbors. So I'm thinking of a particular piece of property right now that's for sale and that somebody was looking at. And I looked at that piece of property and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's going to be an absolute train wreck because I know the neighbors. I know the type of people that are around that property. And I know the, the, the outfitter that borders two sides of the property. I'm like, there's you just walk away. All right. So that's what I want to talk about. Um, if you are looking at buying property, oh, let, and let me give you one caveat before we dive in. All right. I'm going to be talking about this from my perspective in the Northwest Kansas area. All right. I'm not going to give you any legal advice. I'm not going to act as your realtor here. I'm just acting as a land manager, as a biologist, as somebody who's been out here working now for the past six plus years. Well, I've been out here for, geez, over a decade, but actively working in this area for six plus years now. And I'm just sharing with you my thoughts on what I look at or what I think you should look at if you're going to buy a piece of property. Because the number one thing that I can tell you right now, and this is important, and I'm not going to bash any realtor out there at all. I have friends that are realtors, okay? But just understand, as the buyer, especially if you are an out-of-state buyer, when people are talking about buying land in Kansas, so to speak, most of the time, the people that are buying land in Kansas, at least in my neck of the woods, and you're talking about 80 acres, 160 acres, 320 what you're you're talking chunks of sections of ground most of the time those people are out of state and they're looking for hunting most of the time it hits my radar screen because it people are wanting to buy it for hunting which means oftentimes you end up looking at a sale bill that comes from a realtor that has you know deer antlers in the their logo it has some sort of hunting in their logo. It has some sort of outdoors in their logo. It has some a deer track, a turkey track, a, a shot guy, you know, with a shotgun. There's something in their their realty focus is hunting land, and they're going to market it. Just understand, if a landowner wants to sell their ground and they think that it has hunting potential potential or they can make the statement and plausible argument that it has hunting potential, oftentimes what they are looking at is that they can get a higher land a per acre cost. They can, they can offer that ground and try to get a higher cost per acre than they would if they were going to sell it to a local for ag value. Most of the time, anybody that comes in especially for if you're from if you're from Colorado, if you're from Texas, you're from Utah, you if you're from some somewhere out out of state and you look at it and you say, "Man, I'd like to buy that for for hunting." Just go ahead and tack on another $1000 per acre, okay? A, a lot of people are going a lot of folks are going to list that land as a premium because they're trying to get a higher value out of it for a hunting purpose than they could ever get from a from an ag purpose, all right? So right off the bat, number 1, whatever price is listed on that sale bill is probably going to be higher than what that that piece of ground actually appraises for. If there was ever an appraisal on it, 
the the price breakers probably or the price and and or the equivalent price breaker is going to probably be a lot more than what it is from an ag value. All right. Now, again, it all depends on willingness to pay. If you look at that piece of ground and it's a sweet piece of ground, okay, then maybe you don't care what the appraised value is. The appraised value is what the appraised value is and the agriculture and the, the, the whole property is what it is. But for you, maybe you have a higher premium and a higher willingness to pay for that piece of ground. So maybe it's irrelevant of what the cost is. If the price fits your price range and you really, really want that property, fine, go buy it. But you have to also understand that the landowner who owns the property reached out to that realtor and that realtor agreed to list the property. It's the job of the realtor to sell the property. And it's the job of the realtor to try to get the highest value out of that property for the landowner that they can. So they're going to advertise this piece of property as a tremendous hunting potential or a tremendous property for hunting, great deer and turkey potential, great upland bird and pheasant habitat, blah, 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 blah. Of course, they're going to say it's the greatest thing since sliced bread because their commission and their landowner sale rides on it. Okay. Just because it has the logo that has some sort of sporting thing in it that, that you identify, whether it's whitetails or turkeys or upland birds or waterfowl or whatever, doesn't necessarily mean that this piece of ground is going to be awesome for that. You really do need to do your homework, especially if you are a person that is going to purchase the property sight unseen. Sight unseen, sorry. If you're not going to go out and physically walk the property, goodness gracious, ladies and gentlemen, might I suggest you find someone to do it for you. Because when you walk the ground, you're going to learn, you can learn a whole bunch of stuff about it that may or may not jive with your idea of what you want for that property and, and your hunting endeavors. Are you looking for a turnkey property that literally you don't have to do squat with and you literally can purchase the property, go out, hang a couple tree stands, put up a couple ground or uh, uh, ground blinds and put up a couple game cameras and the next hunting season you can just get out there and rock and roll? Okay. Or are you walking across a property that you look at and you're like, goodness, uh, I'm going to have to do some work out here. Or quite honestly, you get to the property and you're like, well, goodness, this isn't, this isn't anywhere near where I thought there, what the, what, okay. You, you're, you're about to spend several hundred thousand dollars, depending on the size of the acres that you're dealing with. My neck of the woods now just, and, and again, I'm, I'm telling you this from my perspective in this Northwest, North central part of Kansas. All right. This is just my opinion. What I've seen. Generally speaking now, there have been a handful of purchases in my area by people that really did want their this piece of pro, the, uh, the property, whatever property they were looking at, they really, really wanted it. And so they offered about, let's just say a ballpark $2,000 an acre. From an ag standpoint, it's not even near $2,000 an acre, especially if we're talking about river bottom areas. That from, from an ag and cattle grazing standpoint, that isn't even close to what the actual production value of that property is. It's 
a third, if not double what the value is. But the, the hunters that were looking to buy the land, this is what they wanted and they were willing to pay this, this amount of money. Well, guess what? All the realtors in the area and the landowners immediately went, oh, well, I guess I'm going to list it for 2,000 an acre then or more. All right. So if you're going to be, yeah, I said 2,000, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not 200,000. Yeah. It's 2,000 2, per acre. So obviously you start, you just multiply the number of acres that you're looking at on that sale bill or, or look at the price on the sale bill and then divide it by the number of acres. And, and you're going to get an idea of what they're asking per acre. So my point being is, is you're going to be spending several hundred thousands of dollars on this. It's, it's not couch cushion change for the vast majority of people. All right. So you owe it. You need to look at this purchase as an investment. Is it an investment or, or some people don't care. That's fine. If you've got the money that's burning a hole in your bank account, or you're looking at the stock market now and you're like, this sucks. I need to do something different. All right, fine. Whatever. I don't care. There's, there's, I, there's a lot of people that out there that have a hell of a lot more money than me. That's I'm good. Good on you. I'll shake your hand right on, man. But you should look at this as a, as an investment and it should be a smart investment. So let's go down through a little bit of a list. What's going in my mind is I'm looking at properties dealing with prospective buyers and I've, or, or people that have recently purchased and now, now I'm out there on the ground consulting with them on what, what do we do with the property now, now that you've got it, all right? And so, again, this is off the back of the, uh, just a little, I, I just, like, okay, what does Rush Limbaugh do? Okay, that's exactly it. I've got, I've got a piece of paper here that's the backside of a, I just got some more covert scouting cameras, or the cell cameras, and, and this is the little, the sales receipt, so I just pull it out of the box. So, anyway, all right, not that that matters, I don't know, anyway, anyway, anyway all right, so, let me sip on my drinky drink here a minute and I'm, and we're going to dive into this baby because I think there's a lot here. And this, again, it's general. Okay. General. I want you to understand that there's going to be some properties that you're looking at that might not, the principles that I'm talking about here now are the principles that you need to be going through your mind. Habitats are going to be different. The, the ground that's down in Southeast Kansas is not the same as up here in Northwest Kansas. If you're looking at something in, in central Nebraska, it's not this, it's not the exact same as what I'm dealing with, but the principles apply. So just understand, just listen to the principles I'm talking about and then adapt them to the piece of ground and around where you're looking at. And by all means, I'm serious. If you're looking for ground around in this area, Goodness gracious, if you can't get out there and look at it for yourself, call me and we'll set something up and I'll go look at it for you. All right. So, okay. Drinky drink. All right. First and foremost, when you're, you need, if, when you're looking at a sale bill, you need to, that sale bill better have a good aerial picture. Number one. Number two, it better have multiple good pictures of the property. And when I say aerial picture, ideally, I want to see a satellite image. At least some, whether it's an Onyx uh, image, whether it's a Google Earth image, I want to see a broad view of of the property boundaries of that property. I also want to know, I want it to show me exactly where that property is, or at least I better be able to figure out exactly where that property is. Like as in, where's the nearest town? What are the road names around it? Because I'm going to go deep dive it in Google Earth, if not on X, and I'm going to start broadening my scope and, and, and honing in on things. 
That sale bill, in my opinion, that sale bill better show me exactly where that property is so I can look a little bit further into it. So when you're looking at the sale bill, I want to see pictures. I want to see property boundaries. I want to see road names. I want to see adjacency to uh, towns, etc. And the first thing that I'm going to look at, oh, and in and, and this day and age, most of good uh, realtors are getting drone footage. So watch that drone footage. Watch the little video that they, they do, okay? Watch it. Get a, get a feel for what they're, what they're showing you. Because there's going to be showing you and they're going to be showing you some of the highlights of the property, but I'm almost guarantee will tell you they're going to avoid showing you some of the not so glorious stuff on that, all right? All right, so here we go. First thing I'm going to look at, connectivity. Is this property in a corridor that has connectivity of habitat, connectivity of movement of deer and turkeys and wildlife and and there it's in it has it is it's in a it's in a yeah, there you go. It's it's in a corridor. It, there's a movement. There's a reason to have movement. There's a purposeful behavioral propensity for animals to move through and around the property. Yes or no? If it's in a river bottom and that entire river bottom has a whole bunch of good cover, okay, it's got good connectivity, most likely. But I have seen so many properties listed that are in the middle of nowhere, isolated several miles from any river drainage, any several miles for any real corridor of anything, and it has a, a little brushy draw through the middle of it. And people say, oh, this is a great hunting property because of this, this. Is, okay. Can it be that way? It can be. And I actively manage a property like that right now. It is two miles off the main river bottom. It is isolated by itself in a sea of agriculture. And for some reason... It's where a bunch of deer like to hang out and it's where a bunch of turkeys like to hang out every single year. So for this isolated pocket that I'm dealing with, oh my gosh, it's a great little piece of ground. Hell yeah, is it worth looking at? Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, I have another piece of ground. Now th now this new piece of ground is actually doubled in size. There is another piece of ground that I manage and am involved with that is literally two miles off of the exact same river bottom. And the deer use is eh, marginal. It can, it's, it's spotty at best. We're going to try to develop it this year, but it's spotty at best. It's inconsistent based on what the, what the, what the crop rotation is around on the landowner, as well as the neighbors. We're going to, we're going to talk about neighbors here in a little bit, but it, it all depends on the crop rotation. So here we're looking at two properties that have a similar habitat component to it, a similar distance off of the main river bottom that's awesome, and the two properties are, they're not polar opposites, but they ain't equal. They ain't equal at all, all right? So if it's isolated off of the main, if there's, if there's no reason for, for animals to be there, you need to look critically at that piece of ground before you just say, yep, I'm going to pay a premium price for it because you might be buying a piece of ground that might at best 
get incidental wildlife use. Meaning, if you want this ground for hunting for you and your family, and you've got your yourself and two kids, or you, your wife, your two or three kids, or whatever, ain't no way in hell that property is, especially if you're talking about, oh, I'm going to buy an 80-acre chunk. No way. No way in hell is some, no way in hell are some of those parcels going to be able to sustain the intended hunting that you want to put on that ground. No way. Versus, there are other some some other pieces of ground that might be an 80-acre parcel. Seriously, it might be a 40-acre parcel. But that 40 acres is the key part. You, you And maybe it will do exactly what you want it to do. You need to look at these things and, and evaluate first. What is the connectivity of it? What is the potential for the connectivity? Obviously, if it's in a river bottom corridor, it's a, and it's, it, it doesn't even have to... And, well, I guess, let me just jump to it real quick. I, I mean, I'm going to scratch this off. All right, for water, all right, that's a big one out here. If you're going to go to an area that has, you know, limited amount of, of rainfall annually, where I'm at, we're looking at between 20 and 22 inches of rain a year. Sometimes we might get maybe 24 inches or whatever, but we're in that 20 to 22 inch annual rainfall. So there's some places in upland areas that are just absolute popcorn fart dry, okay? You're not going to find any live water on it. Versus, there are some creek bottoms and drainages that, goodness gracious, the way that they are lined up and, and just the way that they are, there's there's good water, if not 95% of the time, maybe 100% of the time. And when I say live water, I mean water that is moving, that, that daylights, okay? Sure, there's some places where you may it, your property might have water that you can drill a well and access for your drinking water or whatever, or if you want to put a hydrant and, and run a hydrant, uh, to fill a, a water tank or something like that. Okay, that, that's one thing. Or it may have a stock pond, and, and we'll talk about this here in a minute too. Maybe it has a stock pond where it will catch water uh, that's that's overland flow from rain runoff and, and snow melt and all that type of stuff. But I'm talking about live water. Is there is there a creek running through it that has water that is flowing? I don't care if it's even a trickle. It doesn't have to flow hard, all right? Even if it just it maintains a little trickle through the year. Okay, awesome. That's going to be a much bigger benefit <clears throat> than something that goes dry. And quite honestly, even I'm along the Solomon River and even out here, the Solomon River itself in past years has gone dry. And there might be a pocket of water out there, but there's still a pocket of water that, that animals have access to. But the main river flow actually falls under the sand bottom and just flows underground. But there, again, there's pockets of water, that live water, that, that water that is available. If it's got live water, that's a plus, all right? Oftentimes, if it has live water in it, you're going to have a connectivity of corridor. The reason why there's live water there is because it's a big corridor and it's a big drainage. Obviously, if it's a big drainage, that then you oftentimes will have deer movement up and down that drainage and you will have deer or turkey movement up and down that drainage, okay? And you have a good possibility of having activity on the site year round because that live water is there. All right. Now we can have a discussion about whether, you know, say turkeys need live water or deer need live water. And certain, okay. There there's the, these physio, physiological need and then there's desirability and use. All right. If you give them the choice of having live water to not having live water, the deer and turkeys love it. And they love being able to get a drink, especially in those dry seasons when they're only eating extremely dry material. 
If they're eating extremely dry material, yes, can they extract some moisture out of that? Sure. But this is where water becomes key. When it's in the middle of summer, and again, out in this country, a lot of times you're going to have dry land agriculture, which is on a rotational basis, which means there are places in fields that will lie fallow. There's nothing growing in them. And or you go from one crop to the next, they will leave that sitting fallow until the next spring. They'll keep it clear of all weeds and anything, and then they'll grow something later. Well, that entire chunk of agriculture right there is bone dry, doing nothing, and it's not producing any succulent vegetation up until the farmer goes in and plants. So again, the deer and the turkeys are going to want to focus on areas where they have access to water. Physiologically, do they need it? Maybe not. Do they prefer it? Hell freaking yes. Okay. So look at the water going through the property that you're looking at buying. Does it have live water or is it just a dry upland site that might have water flowing, you know, after a big rainstorm, but as soon as that storm is over, it just kind of soaks into the ground and then whoop, away it goes. There's a difference there. All right. So just pay attention to that as well. But that connectivity is huge on the potential of the property you're looking at. If you're dealing with an isolated property, you need to go look at it. You need to verify it and you need to actually evaluate the use of wildlife in that parcel based on tracks, rubs, scrapes, turkey feathers, turkey droppings, all the above. Go look at it. And I'm not saying every realtor does this, but I know for a fact in the past, I have looked at things. I have looked at a sale bill and then I've looked at the property and the pictures of the deer rubs that they were posting on the sale bill, the picture of the deer scrapes that they were putting on the sale bill were not on the property. They were mixing and matching photographs. That is my opinion, fraud. You need to verify it for yourself. Just because you see a picture of a deer in a game camera you better ha- they better be able to show you where that game camera came from on that property and you be able better be able to go out and verify it just because there's a picture of a game camera with a deer on it or a, a rub or a scrape or something or deer tracks you need to verify all right the connectivity is huge in my book look at that the next one is is if we look at cover all right now obviously out in this type of country whitetails mule deer well, mule Mule deer separate. Let's just, most people aren't buying property because they want mule deer. Most people are buying property because they want deer, whitetails and turkeys. Let's just be honest. And then maybe some pheasant and quail. Um, in that regard, then whitetails like cover. Out here, yes, whitetails are a- adapted to more open terrain, open country, which means, yes, you can find them in more open habitats. That's, that's not disputable. But when we look at the property itself, you're going to see an aerial photograph or aerial, a satellite image. Um, Okay, here we go. Here's another little rabbit hole. Let's talk about a satellite image a minute because some people don't realize this. If you pull up an image off of Google Earth, that is not the current issue or image of the ground. Look in the lower right-hand corner. Okay, for instance, I'm going to bring up Google Earth. I'm, I'm looking at a parcel right now that I'm, I'm going to use this as an example. <clears throat> Here we go. This particular parcel, Google Earth image at this Zoom level. Imagery date. You need to look at that. Imagery date is August 28th, 2017. 
This is from 2017. If I just go, if I zoom, here, if I zoom out, oh, this one's good. This one's actually good. All right. This one stays consistent. This particular area, the, the, the bulk of the imagery is from 2017. That's good. In other areas, you might actually bring up your Google Earth, Google Earth image, and it might be from 2013. Okay, that's a long time ago. So what you see on the landscape from that satellite image may not actually reflect what that thing is out there right now. Okay, so it's it's not it's not necessarily current, and the imagery that that Onyx Map, Maps uses might be different from Google Earth which might be different from Bing, which is, might be different from any other mapping software that actually uses uh, satellite imagery. So just understand most of the satellite imagery is going to be a couple to several years old. So you're not looking at current conditions. You're looking at what used to be. So just understand that, all right? But when you're looking at a piece of, of property, and again, I'm looking at the piece of property that we just purchased, that that, uh, that uh, a landowner friend of mine just purchased. Great piece of ground that has potential. But when you look at this, this satellite imagery, you look at the corridor and you're like, man, that looks nice. All right? There's a lot of diversity to it. It's it's spread out. It's got connectivity. It's got side channels. It, it's It's got some, it oh, it looks awesome. All right? Now you go out there and look at it. This property is actually pretty good. This property has got a good mix of cottonwoods. It's got some hackberries on it. It's got some ash. It's got some black walnut on it. It does have some locust trees on it. But And there's a lot of, um, uh, I don't know if they're Chinese elms. or I think they're, they're just non-native elms. There's a bunch of elms on it. Uh, young elms coming in. There's a bunch of young cedars coming in. So actually there's a lot of diversity in our, as far as our air is concerned. There's actually a lot of diversity on this piece as far as the trees go, all right? Again, we're in an area where we don't have a lot of oaks. I mean, like as in if there's an oak in this country, someone planted it, all right? We, we just don't have oak trees up here. We end up having a lot of cottonwoods, ash, um, hackberry, black walnut, uh, locust, honey locust. All right. So that's just generally our, our tree composition for the most part in this country. But the, the, the thing to understand is when you're looking at a satellite image on Google earth, you're not going to know exactly what trees that you're dealing with. So if you look at this satellite, uh, a, not this one, but a satellite image, well, I can tell you, I've got a chunk of ground right now. I can show you. If you looked at a chunk of uh, a satellite image of this particular piece of ground, you'd be like, Oh, that looks awesome. Uh huh. Until you go walk it, and then you realize you've got three hundred year, you know, one hundred and fifty to three hundred year old cottonwoods, giant mature cottonwoods. Then you have no young growth, and the vast, the vast remaining chunk of of all the trees in the area are nothing but nasty, spiny, thorny, vicious honey locust. They might be three foot in diameter. They're huge, but they are so loaded with thorns. You wouldn't want to even try to touch it. And then you look across the river bottom and that is literally the only tree that's growing in there. And you'll have from three foot diameter all the way down to just young saplings and sprouts and shoots coming up everywhere. 
It's all nasty, thorny, vicious honey locusts. Why? Probably one of two things. Either A, they had an excessive amount of cattle grazing in the bottom. The cattle will absolutely rub on, scratch on any saplings and trees that they have, which can cause problems. And any young trees that come in, they'll graze, they'll, they'll take the tops off them and they'll nibble on them. All right. So, if, and then if there's ever cattle grazing in there, even anything wanting to come up, they run right through them. All right. Deer populations, if there's a high deer population in the area, you're, and especially if you look back 10, you know, 15, 10, even hell, five years ago, in some areas where our deer population was really, really high for a while, you're not going to get any native vegetation growing down in, in some of those concentration areas. The agriculture spit was so good, and, and we're going to talk about this in a different podcast later on, but the agriculture in those areas was so good and so diverse that it actually artificially supported or, or, or supported an artificially high whitetail population. And so as they go bed down in a river bottom or down in a little corridor or a protected pocket, well, they're going to nibble all day long and they just nibble on everything and they just kill anything that's palatable. They just wipe it out. So now the only thing that's left growing or, and then the third portion of this, and this is literally with the property that one of the properties I managed that they recently, recently changed hands, a vast portion of the river bottom is nothing but honey locust now because of beavers. The beavers came in took out all the desirable species that they could get right off the bat. They ate themselves out of house and home. And then, because they were out of out of the good cottonwood and the young cottonwood and all the young willows that were in there, they ate all them up. They went to hackberry. They would ring, and I'm dealing with this right now. I've got, and I'm literally, I've got a beaver right now that is my bane of my existence. He doesn't build a dam. He just lives in the bank. And he's transient. He just moves up and down the river bottom. He's, he's completely random. What does he do? He doesn't cut a tree down. He just walks out of the bank at night and he just eats all the bark around the bottom of the tree and then moves on. Well, you just killed that tree, but I, it, there's no Dan. There's not, he's just gone. And then the next night, maybe several hundred yards down the, the river bottom, there's a new tree, ate all the bark off of it. So now he's ringing trees and killing them. Do you think he's over there eating on locust? Let me answer that question for you. Hell no, he's not eating on locust. That's the only tree that li- that remains on the landscape. So depending on what happened in the corridor that you're dealing with, that you're looking at, you might have some really good trees that are diverse enough to ha- diverse enough to provide, you know, roosting habitat for turkeys. Maybe it provides some soft mass, like the hackberries a little bit. Maybe you know what? Maybe you've got some diverse tree structure there, or maybe you've got a sea of just crap. You. It might be good to know that. You look at an area, a satellite image, and you're like, dude, there's so many places I could put a tree stand. Uh-huh. Go for it. I dare you. Literally, what I have to do out here, we we started using a lot of ladder stands because our clients like them, and they're safe, and there's all sorts of reasons. Literally, I, sometimes I'll have to take my 24-foot extension ladder. I will lean that sucker up against a tree, and I'll go up with a machete, and I literally scrape off all the thorns. From around the from around the, the area of the tree stand where that tree stand is going to sit, and then I'll try to go up and attach it. Uh, literally, you can't you uh, if you haven't experienced honey locust out here. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness! All right, my point being is 
not all tree corridors are created equal. You're going to hear that as a theme, okay? Because I, I just, I've got another off-the-cuff rant that I, no, it wasn't a rant. Maybe it was a rant. But I've got another off-the-cuff one I just did that I'm going to post after, you know, here in a little bit. Not all areas are created equal. My gosh, I can't stress that enough. And people don't think about that when they're watching YouTube, when they're seeing Instagram posts or Facebook posts. They're listening to these experts talking about habitat development and land and all that. Okay, not all areas are created equal. Each area that you're looking in is going to have its unique uh, opportunities and challenges. You have to identify them on the piece of ground that you're looking at if you want to buy it. You need to walk. You need to walk the river bottom to really see what does your tree cover look like? Is it in good condition? You have diverse trees. You've got young trees, old trees. Are they healthy? You might look at a chunk and it has a bunch of big old cottonwoods on it and you're like, man, that looks awesome. Again, I've got, I'll take you, come out and visit. I will walk you straight up to one of our properties that I manage. It's an 80 acre chunk. This chunk used to be the number one roost site in the region for turkeys. And if I go right on the website or if I go to Google Earth now, I can bring up the Google Earth image and it's going to show me this entire grove of gargantuan, beautiful, probably 200 plus year old monster cottonwoods. And those birds used to roost in their aws. I mean, just you'd stack a couple hundred birds, literally 150 turkeys in that roost. Did you notice I was using past tense? Used to? Why? Because a couple years ago, we had a mini tornado come through and it took every one, almost every one of those big cottonwoods and put it right to the forest floor. Dumped them right on, the, just ripped them right over, blew them over, snapped them off. And the, the trees that did stay... It snapped most of the big branches off. Do the turkeys still roost there? Yeah. Not even remotely in the numbers that they did. They ended up having to separate themselves and spread out across the landscape. Now they're roosted a lot more on our neighbors to our south and their neighbors to our north. Just because you're looking at a satellite image, you, you, again, it's got to be a couple years to several years to many years old. You need to pay attention to that. So that way you can tell whether or not, well, hold on a minute. I'm just, I'm clicking, I'm clickety click, clicking here a minute. So that way I can make sure that this recording is still working. All right. I don't want to, I what would really suck is me be on a, on a roll, just going on this little rant. And then all of a sudden find out that like an hour ago, it stopped recording. That'd be my luck. That's just how it usually goes. Um, all right. Let me just, I'm, I'm re- there we go. All right. So, so you really need to look at your, your corridor. Okay. Is, are we dealing with good trees that you can work with and has diversity? Or are we just dealing with ugly? You might have an, an issue of ugly out there. All right. And then the other thing that you need to look at is, okay, what does, what does it look like under that tree corridor? Is there good cover within that tree corridor or did they use it for cattle grazing and it's been grazed to piss? Okay. A, several and this oftentimes happens, all right? A lot of times landowners are going to sell the pieces of ground that they just don't get the best value for or the best use out of as opposed to other ground that they own. They're, they're not going to they're not going to sell off their fatted calf, so to speak. They're going to sell off their sick and old, okay? So if they see a piece of ground that they're just not utilizing well or it's just kind of out of the way or it's just 
or it's just been beat up, sometimes that's the piece of ground that they'll sell. And so in some of these tree corridors, <clears throat> you can have really good cover. There's really good grass in there. There's, you know, young trees. There's a, a very diverse habitat in there where it's very difficult to see very far down that corridor. Versus in some of these places, you have cattle ranchers that will ab- actually and absolutely utilize the river corridor as their winter calving pasture. All right. So they know the, or their winter pasture for the cattle and their and or their calving pasture. They'll bring the cattle into the river corridors and they'll calve down in the river corridors because it's protected. Usually we don't have floods during the winter down in there. So it's protected. It's out of the wind. It's sheltered. It's good place to calve for your cattle. And or there's places where people will just say, you know what, I'm going to graze this chunk of ground. And so I just lop off all of the ground that is not at active production ag. And I just turn my cattle into it. Okay. In that case, then we need to look at what is under the, the tree corridor. What does the range condition look like in that tree corridor? What is the health of the grassland and shrub component of that tree corridor? Is it good and healthy or has it been grazed to the absolute piss to where now all it is is cheatgrass? And then if we look at cheatgrass, how long has the cheatgrass been there? Are we dealing with cheatgrass coming in and around and amongst the native grasses that are in there? Or are we talking about such heavy impacts from cattle that is nothing but a nine inch, a six to nine inch layer of cheatgrass upon cheatgrass upon cheatgrass upon cheatgrass? Now, for anybody that is not familiar with cheatgrass, you need to look it up. Number one, cheat, C-H-E-A-T, grass, cheatgrass. It is called cheatgrass because it cheats most spring growing early season, cool season grasses, those grasses that grow in the cool climates of fall and spring when there's a little bit of good moisture that cool season grasses, cool season plants need cooler temperatures, better moisture. All right? The thing with cheatgrass is, cheatgrass is a major competitor. It does not need a lot of moisture, and it is literally the first thing, oftentimes, that, that, that greens up. It'll start growing late summer. It starts growing, it starts greening up, it starts getting its... And the roots are only an inch, two inches, three inches deep, tops. Most of the time I see it's about two inches deep. But they are thick. And the cheatgrass grows so tightly together, it actually will create a carpet. It literally is like going, go to your house, go find an area rug, and literally pull up the edge of your area rug. It's literally what cheatgrass is like. You can grab a fistful of cheatgrass and pull it up, and it's literally like pulling up an area rug. The roots are only an inch to two inches deep. It creates this thick mat that nothing can can sprout up through. Number one. And number two, it starts growing so early and the roots are so dense, it catches most of the moisture that's coming through that column and it uses it first, meaning it won't let as much water get down to the remnant native grasses that should be in or that are or should be there. Which means that over time, cheat grass will often increase on the landscape. It outcompetes the good stuff that you want. And if it's been damaged and constantly worked into the ground, you literally can have places where cheatgrass has become so problematic that it has killed 
all of the native grass and, and vegetation that's in there, and it has become nothing but a monoculture of cheatgrass. You have no sod layer anymore. You might have a good soil structure. You might have a good organic layer, a good A horizon, B, C, you know, if you, if you know your soils and you hear people talk about soil structures, all right, you might still have good soil structure, but you don't have sod. You don't have roots growing. You don't have a healthy ecosystem underneath that layer of cheatgrass. So if you get out on a site and you walk the bot river bottom and you're looking at nothing but a green carpet of cheatgrass, uh, you have a project on your hands. Now, granted, it's not a bad, it's, it's not, it's, it's not a, not, it's not a, an impossible project. Cheatgrass is almost impossible to completely remove off the landscape. All right. Just because it will grow everywhere and the seeds will travel. They'll pick up on a deer leg. They'll pick up on a cow's leg. You walking through your dogs running or through or whatever. It'll pick up. It'll, it'll drop over somewhere else and it will sprout and it'll put, it'll set seed and it. So Cheatgrass is a nightmare to deal with on larger landscapes when you're trying to na- manage for really good native vegetation. However, it's not that difficult to kill. All right. So you can you deal with it in these river bobs? Absolutely you can. But you just have to understand you've got a project. You're going to deal with a project. You're going to have to go in and spray. You're going to have to go in and kill the cheatgrass. And as far as I'm concerned, unless someone has some really good new data that they haven't that I, I haven't seen yet, the only way you're going to kill cheatgrass is you're going to have to use herbicide. Sorry. Now, granted, you can go in there and disc it. If you have a disc, yes, you can. You can go in there and, and shave it off and you can disc it under. Just understand, you're going to disc it. You're going to let the bulk of it die. And then a bunch more is going to sprout. You're going to have to go back in. You're going to have to disc it. A bunch of it's going to die. And then you're going to have other stuff coming in and, and sprout. And then, okay, so you're going to have this cycle of you're going to have to work at killing the cheatgrass. Can it be killed? Yes. It's not herbicide resistant. Okay. You can do it. Just understand, you now have a project. So if you're dealing with a, 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 a five acre little chunk of cheatgrass, all right, not a big deal. But if you're dealing with a hundred acres of cheatgrass across your entire river bottom, you just have to understand. You're not dealing with a turnkey spot where you're going to have a lot of deer cover and a lot of deer bedding. You're not going to have almost any deer bedding in there. The deer might move through at night. You might have turkeys move through, incidentally, but they're not hanging out in those areas 99.9% of the time. So if you want to start converting them, you can just understand when you purchase this property for extra whatever hundreds of thousands of dollars you just purchased it for, just understand budget that you're going to need to do some habitat work. All right, but you need to know that when you walk through that river bottom. So what is your what is the what is the the range condition? What does the habitat look like under that corridor? The only way you're going to know that is if you, either the realtor that's selling the property is really good and an honest and, and has of high integrity where they're actually going to go down through the river bottom and take pictures and say, yeah, this is a big bunch of cheatgrass. Highly unlikely. Or you go out and you physically walk it or have someone go walk it for you that knows what they're looking at so they can identify whether or not that's cheatgrass or not. All right? You need to walk it and look. Now, the same thing goes for the grasses and the, and the upland areas. Okay? So a lot of times when you're looking at... Um, Sale bills, it's going to say it's got such and such. This, it'll say X number of acres of uh, tree corridor. It'll have X number of acres of grass or an X number of acres of ag field. Or what it'll, or 
you'll see oftentimes this 160 acres, this quarter section, this 160 has 100 acres of ag and 60 acres of what they call quote-unquote waste ground. That waste ground is ground that they just, it's not productive agriculture. They probably, they might graze it or, or maybe they had it in CRP or something else, or maybe they just, maybe it truly is. Maybe it's waste. They never did anything with it. Typically, not likely. Most of the time it was either grazed or it was rolled into some something like CRP. We'll get to CRP here in just a second. But when we're looking at the grasses, the waste ground, we talked about the tree corridor, but you need to look at what the other grasses on the landscape are. I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen sale bills that say, you know, it's got X number of, of um, tillable ag, productive, you know, production ag ground, and then it has this amount of waste ground that is in beautiful warm season, native warm season grasses. That is one of the biggest catchphrases nowadays that you'll ever find. Native warm season grasses, beautiful native warm season grasses. Oh yeah, I'm going to get native warm season grasses. Oh really? Well, let's talk about that, brother. Because if you're going to get on that sail, but you're going to look at that aerial map, or aerial map, aerial, that satellite image, here's what you need to do. Do yourself a favor and zoom the, zoom in. Okay. If you're looking at that image and you're looking at the waste ground area, quote unquote, waste ground area, the places that look green, that aren't trees and that aren't ag ground, that usually is in some sort of grass. Look at it. And so for right now, I am literally looking at the piece of ground that we, that I just worked with this landowner to, 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 to buy his ground that he bought. You look at the quote unquote waste ground and I see a nice, even shade of green across the whole thing. Now, granted, there's some other, there's some places in there. Uh, they're up and this is, this would be grazing. This, this grassland would be all grazing country. All right. So the grasses in his grazing pastures are almost, it's probably 99% green or brownish green. Or so that tells me you've got different modeling colors of green, which means there's different species of grass on the landscape. I'm looking at this because it's in August it's late season. I'm seeing some green. I'm seeing some kind of reddish green. Red. So there's a mix of cool season. My my gut tells me, based on what I'm looking at, I'm looking at a mix of cool season and warm season grasses. I'm probably looking at cheat grass in there along with some warm season grasses. But I'm not seeing any white. Now, I can look at uh, the southwest portion of his property and along a creek drainage, along a side drainage, I'm seeing white show up. Okay, what is that white? And if I go to the southwest of his the piece that just was purchased and I zoom out and I start looking at the grassland areas around that, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm seeing a lot of white pieces, gray, white, gray, whitish gray patches all through the grass. What is that? That, my friends, is dirt and rock. Most of the time out here, that's a type of limestone, shale, okay? That's rock. That means if you see on your picture that they're trying to sell, you're looking at your grass that they're trying to sell, and you're seeing a lot of white patches out there, that means your soils in those areas are shallow. That means there's a lot of rock daylighting 
out of the ground. The areas around all that white most likely is going to be shallow soil. Well, if you have shallow soil, that means the distance between the soil surface and the bedrock is not very deep. If it's not very deep, just imagine a sponge. Okay, we talked about this on the other podcast uh, that's on the Elk Module. We're talking about looking at a mountain and, and, and visualizing it as a sponge when we're talking about soil moisture and how moisture moves through a soil profile. All right, whether we're talking about a mountain line or mountain line. Yeah, need to take a drink. Hold on. Yeah, we're talking about a mountain line. We're we're talking about a mountain landscape, or whether we're talking about a grassland. If you're dealing with shallow soils, let's not even let's not even talk about the type of the soil. If we're talking about sandy loam soils or silt loam soils or clay soils, let's not even talk about the soil itself. Let's just talk about shallow. Obviously, shallow is not going to hold as much water as deep. All things considered, out in here, out in this country, we've got a lot of sandy soils. We got sandy loam soils. We got silt loam soils. So there's different silt or different soil structures. But obviously, apples to apples, shallower soil is going to hold a lot less water than a deep soil. Okay. Well, if that's the case, and a shallow soil doesn't have a lot of room for a grass to grow its roots down, if all of, if it's only 12 inches from where the the crown of that grass that plant is, and it puts a, its roots down, and it just hits rock at 12 inches. Well, that's as far as those roots can go versus if your soil depth is three plus feet or more, be, you know, before you hit rock, goodness gracious, you can have good soil moisture. You can have good soil moisture deep, which means your plants can put down some good deep roots, which means they can grow some big chunks of roots and they'll have moisture down there, which means you can grow some different species of grass that can be highly productive, which means... A lot of times, if you go out to these grassland areas that you're going to purchase and the sale bill says has a lot of great native warm season grasses, uh-huh, it's all side oats grandma and little blue stem, which means it's literally six inches tall to maybe 18 to two feet, 18 inches to 24 inches tall. How many deer are you going to hide in 18 inch tall little blue stem? You can show that on one hand, all right? So ver- versus versus other areas that have deep soils, you'll look out there and they've got switchgrass, big blue stem, Indian grass that literally are four to five feet tall, huge, big, bushy, all right? There's a difference in the grass. This is where the CRP comes in. Not all CRP is created equal. What we like to hear when we hear when we hear someone say CRP, our brain goes to oh, switchgrass and big blue stem and Indian grass. Big, deep, thick, awesome cover. Maybe there's some plum thickets in it that that is full of pheasants and quail and great deer bedding area. <coughs> all right? That's what we want to hear. But you can have CRP that is little blue stem. Maybe it's got some big blue stem in it. Maybe it's got some switchgrass in it. Maybe it's got some Indian grass in it. But the predominant structure is little blue stem 
and Sidoat's grandma. Sidoat's grandma, yeah, it's a native warm season grass, and it's oftentimes thrown in. I to this day, it drives me absolutely batshit crazy. Excuse me, it just drives me crazy when I see someone say, "Oh, I'm going to go and put a a CRP mix on my ground." And then I see in the CRP mix that they're talking about the seed that they're using. It has a good portion of side oats grandma. Get it? No. Side oats grandma was put into the mix because it's a great soil binder. It's, it's, it's great for limit, or greatly reducing soil erosion. But the last I knew, it's an increaser species on the landscape over time. It will slowly increase its footprint over time. Especially... If you are in an area that has shallower soils, because it can compete there where your bigger species can't. So there have been, there are CRP chunks that are active CRP. They are legitimately CRP, but they are not the big, thick, lush, deep switchgrass, bedding cover, pheasant habitat that, that we like to hear. So just don't get caught up in the sale bill saying it's got 50 acres of CRP and you're like, yeah, we got good deer and and pheasant. Uh, You might want to go walk it and you might want to take a look because you might be dealing with 18 inch high CRP. That is not the same. All right. So, okay. We talked about deep soils versus shallow soils. Okay. You can get a soils map. All right, there's a we can t- if you need help getting a soils map, I'm not going to talk about that right now. Go you can call National Resources Conservation Service, NRCS, you can get a hold of them. See if they've got soil. You can go to the Soil Conservation Service for the county that you're looking to buy. You can pick up, you know, so whatever county the property is that you're looking at, you can call the Soil Conservation Service over there. You can talk to them. If there's a piece of CRP on that piece of ground that you want to buy, they probably know about it and they probably are are at least involved with some sort of administrating of it. So talk to them. They might have good information for you. It's just a phone call. All right. So, and then call again, and this is just a little side note, but before you buy the ground, unless you're going to have someone look at it for you, call the NRCS, talk to them about that piece of ground, see what they have on it. They might have some activity on that ground that they could tell you. Call the soil conservation district that you're in the county that you're dealing with. See if they have any history on that ground that they're dealing with. Talk to the ag folks. All right. See, there's so many resources that you can find just picking up the phone in that county in the region that can provide you good assets that are oftentimes you can do for free. All right. But you just need to do due diligence and finding out what you're dealing with. Are you dealing deep soils, shallow soils, rocky soils? Is the CRP you're dealing with short CRP or big, tall, deep, lush CRP? How long has it been in CRP? That's another question. If it's at the end of its contract and no one's going to renew it, the question I've got is, was it managed properly? There used to be stipulations placed on CRP that they were supposed to, you know, graze it every now and then, or they were supposed to burn it every now and then, or they were allowed to hay it every now and then. Well, there's some landowners that just didn't do anything. They just walked away from it. And so you walk out in that CRP, you start realizing, damn, there's a lot of sandburrs out here. There's a whole bunch of of goat's heads out here. Both those suckers, if you've never had experience with them, they suck. All right. They're sticky, nasty, pokey things that get in your tires, get in your boots, get in your dog's feet, get in your feet, get in your legs. They're okay. Goat's heads are one thing. It's a broadleaf. You can spray it with 240 and kill it. Easy. The problem with, with, um, sandburrs 
It's a grass. So you can't get sandburrs out of your, unless you spot treat it, you're not going to get rid of sandburrs with a herbicide. Not that I know of. If you, if you know of a, a, a Sandberg Selectives herbicide, by all means, I am, I'm, give me a call because I want to know it. But is it full of sandburrs? Or if you walk out through that cheek, or, yeah, cheatgrass, if you walk out through it in the spring and late fall, all underneath it, is it full of cheatgrass or is it just dead material? If it's full of cheatgrass, okay, keep that in mind. Maybe does that thing need to be burned? Should it have been burned? Did they burn it? What what has been the management of that CRP? How healthy is that CRP? Whether we're t- most of the time, if you're talking about burning it, you're talking about burning the the bigger, deep, the the big switchgrass, blue stem Indian grass sort of um, CRP habitats. All right, so just keep that in mind. And then the other, the the part, the the secondary part of that just goes right back to what we just talked about with the tree corridors. What is the range condition? The overall range condition of the upland areas that aren't in necessarily CRP. Are the grasses in good shape? Is it a diverse mix of grasses up there? Is there a low percentage of cheatgrass? Or when you walk the landscape, is the whole damn thing full of cheatgrass? That matters because quite honestly, this comes down to all about willingness to pay. If you're up, if you're if you're grazing past your land is nothing but cheatgrass, and the creek bottom is nothing but cheatgrass. Uh the actual value of the ground probably ain't even near worth being two thousand dollars an acre. Okay. But if you look at the ground and you're like, you know what? I really, really want this piece of ground. And so I don't mind paying $2,000 an acre or whatever. Okay, fine. It all comes down to willingness to pay. But if you want to try to go for fair market value, a property that is choked out with cheatgrass is not as not, and it has nothing but white outcrops of rock all through it. And it's nothing but short, you know, short native warm season grasses. Well, that per acre value is not as high as what a chunk of ground that, that has healthy grasslands, that doesn't have a lot of cheatgrass, that has those good deep soils, all right? So keep all that stuff in mind. But until you walk it, you're not going to know. I'm looking at the Google Earths thing right now. I've walked this property numerous times now. I know what's out there. Looking at this aerial Looking at this aerial, I know what I'm looking at, but the average person would look at this and be like, oh, sweet. It's got good grass over there. It's got the ag fields there. Ooh, there's a chunk of CRP there. There's a the, the river quarter there. Yeah. This piece of property that we just we just negotiated to, to a friend of mine purchased, it has awesome potential. I'm excited to work on this property. I really am excited to work on this property because it's one of those properties because of the disturbance that was in this property to begin with. We almost have a blank slate that we can create whatever we want, wherever we want. Does that, is it going to take money? Yeah. But when we're done, oh my freaking, holy bleeping bleep. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> awesome. And so from an investment potential, we're going to take this piece of ground and we're just going to make it 10 times better. <coughs> All right. So just because you're buying a project property doesn't mean it's a bad thing. 
But if you don't think, if you don't know you're buying a project property and you're thinking you're going to buy a turnkey property and go out there and hunt it with, you know, you and your, you know, six buddies, uh, you might have another thing coming. All right. So let's talk about the ag fields real quick, because that's another one you're going to see there. You know, a lot of times you're going to say, oh, and, and X number of acres of ag. All right. This is where you've got to really evaluate the area that you're in and, um, yeah, how much soil, mo- how much precipitation you get in soil moisture and, and the ag practices and blah, 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 blah. Most of the people that I know that are going to buy uh, ground for hunting either don't really want to mess with the ag or uh, they're just going to, they're going to utilize the ag ground for ag production because you want the money off the ag production to help pay for the property, excuse me, help pay for the property. But really they're more leaned into providing that using that ag stuff for wildlife, uh, deer and turkey potential and pheasant potential. All right. So when you're looking at a sale bill, a lot of times, if it has active ag on it, you're going to see numbers about, um, how many bushel wheat or how many bushel sorghum or how many bushel corn or how many bushel soybean. And there, there's going to be, and then there might be some, uh, numbers listed in there from an insurance standpoint. I'm not going to go through that. Just understand when you look at that, you need to get a hold of the ag services folks uh, in the county, in the region that you're dealing with, and talk to them about that property. They probably are going to have some information. What those numbers mean is ju- it's from a farming standpoint, it gives an, a person an idea of how much production that piece of that soil and that piece of ground generally has across time. It's an average. Here's, here's the problem with that. You can actually look at a piece of ground that shows a low, a, a low to medium level of productivity. And you can look at that and you go like, Ugh, I don't, man, wow, really? They're only getting that off of it? But then you find out that the, the person that's farming it does a horrible job. Okay, well, the, the farmer's per- performance goes, goes a long way into the, 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 the parcel performance that, that fields performance. Whereas you might have a piece of ground that has exceptional productivity and then you find, okay, good. Well, it's had a really good farmer on whoever's been farming has been doing an awesome, awesome job and it has been really, really taken care of. Awesome. So you kind of need to, it's worth going out and looking at the ground because a, if you want to maximize your ag production, those numbers are going to mean something to you. If you don't really care about the overall numbers and you really want it for wildlife potential anyway, I would still suggest you go out and walk the ground because, yeah, it, uh, before I, again, if, if it's un- quote unquote low production or medium production ag ground, is it because the soils are poor? Or is it is is it because which means if the soils are poor, that means that you have limited ability to do stuff on the landscape. It, 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 your soils are limited on what they can produce. That will could or could play into whether or not you have successful food plots. If you want to do a food plot on your property, you need to know your soils are they productive or not. If they're lower productive soils. If they're lower productive for ag, they very well, dang well, me be lower productive for your food plots. Just understand that. However, if you've got a good landowner and a good farmer, 
those soils might still be marginal, but their but their ag practices practices are so good that they're maximizing the production off that ground. Whoa, okay. If you want to maintain that level of productivity, you got, you better either step in and be able to do exactly what that other landowner was doing, or just work with that landowner and have them stay on the landscape. Maybe cash rent the ground from you, or you contract them to do whatever. Just work with them to keep doing what they're doing because if the ground is taken care of and it's healthy, awesome. Because that brings me to this. The reason why you need to walk it is start walking around and looking at what the weed component is on the landscape. How many weeds are out there? Now, if you've gone through the deer steward, I'm going to talk about this one a little bit. If, if anybody is a passionate deer hunter and they have been following the Quality Deer Management Association, good, you should be. If you are a passionate whitetail hunter, and you're not following or not a member of Quality Deer Management Association, you should be, because they're one of the best organizations I know of, and they're both QDMA and National Wild Turkey Federation, in my opinion, are, are two of the best conservation organizations as far as what they do with their money and what you as the member get out of it, get out of it as far as knowledge. It's incredible. So the Quality Deer Management Association has a program called the Deer Steward. Great program that people need to go through. And if you're listening to this now, you need to jump Johnny on the spot to the Quality Deer Management Association website. Look at their Deer Steward course, Deer Steward 1. That is an online course that you can take. It is incredible. I just took it. I got through it. It's awesome. All right. As a wildlife biologist who's been practicing for 20 years across Colorado, Kansas, it was worth my time, all right? I went into it thinking it was going to be a novelty little course that would be funded. No, it was good, all right? I enjoyed it. I got stuff out of it. You will too. So go to that Deer Steward course, take it. I say all of that because anybody that has gone through it or if you are going to go through it, Dr. Harper, he's a, one of the professors in there. The guy is phenomenal. He's got great information. He talks about old fields and, and ag fields. And, and if you let an ag field go and just come up with native vegetation that wants to jump back, he goes through there and he, most of what he's talking about is from the eastern portion, middle to eastern portion of the Whitetail Range. And when he's talking about letting some places go, some of the weed species that come back in there, like some raspberries and different briars, and maybe you've got some ragweed and some uh, goldenrod and some other things coming up in, a lot of those prickly lettuce and stuff, a lot of those can actually end up being pretty good whitetail food. And it can actually be really good brood cover for turkeys. Remember what I said a little while ago about not all areas are created equal? Yeah, well, um, <clears throat> let me raise my hand here and say, if you're looking in our neck of the woods, that might not be the case. Why do I say that? We are an area where we have large, wide open, expansive areas of agriculture with and grassland pastures cut and incised and it becomes a mosaic of these little creek bottoms and these river drainages. Because of the open nature of the terrain, the wind blows out here. 
And the wind blows, and when the wind blows, the wind blows and wind picks up stuff and it carries that stuff. And when that wind blows and it carries that stuff, that stuff just starts tumbling across the landscape. And if it is a weed such as Russian thistle, such as kochia, not forage kochia, we're talking annual kochia, if that weed is cheatgrass, if that weed is hemp, if that weed is amaranth or pigweed, uh, or if that weed is velvet leaf, guess what? You can have a neighbor that is not taking, uh, no, I can't, no, I won't even say that. I take that back. I'm not even going to say that. You can have, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. I, we've got ground that our, our ground is well taken care of and we still have these. So it doesn't matter if it's well taken care of. If it's not well taken care of, it's just worse. Let's just put it that way. But there's weeds. There's, there's, there's weeds. And those weeds blow and tumble during the winter, fall, winter, spring, summer, all year long. And they'll go from one property to the next, to the next, to the next. Out here, we do have ragweed. That is a good thing. We do have lamb's quarters, which is a good thing. Uh, it, I say a good thing. Deer will utilize um, lamb's quarters a little bit. The tips, growing tips. Deer will use, uh, say, Russian thistle when it's growing and it's early. Um, deer will use the ragweed that grows out here, all right, when it's growing and they'll, they'll use the tips and tops. So there are some weed species that the deer will use a little bit, which is a good thing. However, the problem with letting an ag field go is in our country, the problem ends up being that you get a whole piss pile of stuff that the deer don't use. They will nibble on kochia early but they will not nibble on it enough to keep it under control. And you will get five to seven foot high, depending on the soil moisture. And you'll get these gargantuan blocks of kochia. Kochia is good for quail. It's good for pheasant cover. It really is. But if your entire field is that, you're not providing a, a lot of nutritional component, but you're, you're providing some good quail cover and pheasant cover and deer bedding cover within a certain regard. But the problem out here now is we have some that's essentially herbicide resistant, which means if you get it, you're, you got it. You're not getting rid of it with herbicide. You're going to have to constantly disc it or, you know, you, and people say, oh, just mow your weeds. Yeah. Well, no, good luck. Basically the weed, you can mow that weed off. It just basically flips you the bird and it grows back and it, and it grows. And when it grows, it grows straight, straight flat to the ground. It still goes to seed. It produces a whole bunch of seed, but now you don't even have cover. You're better off letting the kochia grow up because at least then it gives you cover, right? But you'll have kochia. Same thing with Russian thistle. Russian thistle is essentially your classic tumbleweed. You know, you see on your your uh, Westerns movies, you see the tumbleweed. Clint Eastwood, tumbleweeds rolling across. the. That's a lot of times Russian thistle. Deer will nibble on the tips of the growing stems and the, the, yeah, the tips of the, of the plant while it's young. But as soon as it starts getting bigger, it becomes very fibrous and very, very spiny and they don't touch it. And so you get these massive, and it's a nightmare to walk through. It just, it just goes through your pants. It's spiny, prickly, nasty stuff. Again, it, it produces hundreds of thousands of seeds, highly invasive. You get a tumbleweed that rolls across your ag field. Guess what? You just dumped a whole bunch of Russian thistle across your ag field and it's going to sprout. 
Luckily, right now, we don't have a lot of herbicide-resistant Russian thistle, but it's something that you got to deal with. You can kill it very easily with Roundup or 2,4-D <clears throat> if it's getting in your... And again, I'm saying this from an ag per... per um, right now, we're talking about your ag fields, but this is important because your food plots. If, if, you wanna, if you want maximum production of your food plots and you have these weeds next door and they blow into your food plot, you're going to constantly have to spray them or you're going to have to use a, a, a seed mix that is going to allow that to outcompete that. And that's what I'm dealing with on our properties right now. So that's why I'm talking about these weeds. So you'll have Russian thistle just take over huge areas. Velvet leaf, um, deer don't use it. It becomes this huge, massive stalk and, and becomes a problem. Uh, it's good for somewhat cover. Uh, but not really good for any wildlife use other than than cover. Um, the big one that we're having out here now is we have herbicide-resistant amaranth, uh, pigweed. And there's some spiny varieties that are just vicious. Again, deer might nibble on the growth tips here and there, but as soon as it starts to get ready to flower and go to seed, it gets viciously spiky. Nothing wants to touch it. And it, it, it can go everywhere. And again, it does not respond to herbicides, not the herbicides that you and I as a hobby folks can get. You can deal with an ag services company and get the controlled uh, herbicides, but that's about what you've got. Uh, unless you have your applicator's license and, and, and are permitted to get some of these herbicides, you, you're not going to be able to utilize them. So weed issues out here, it's, it's not as easy just to say, well, it doesn't matter if it, my field gets a little weedy because all oh, the deer will use it. Well, maybe, but what you end up doing is you, you significantly reduce the productivity of your, of your ag ground. And so the reason why that's important is because any periphery weeds that you have in your ag field, most of the time, if you're going to do ag productive production ag, the farmers are going to be able to handle the weed issues on there. And in this country, there are a lot more people utilizing pre-emergent herbicides. Because a pre-emergent herbicide is a herbicide that you lay down early. You spray down on the soil and the stubble early. <clears throat> it works its way into the top layer of the soil. And any seed that germinates, kochia, pigweed, amaranth, all that side. Or, or, pigweed, amaranth, same thing. Um it doesn't matter. Russian thistle, that herbicide will kill it as it germinates. As soon as it, that, that weed starts to, to throw leaves, that's when it becomes herbicide resistant and you can't kill it. So the reason why people out here, and this is just a little side note, the reason why people out here have complained about clean, quote unquote, clean farming is because of the, 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 um, the fact that we have herbicide resistant weeds now on the landscape the only thing that people can do is to nuke them before they even come up well that means the problem is that nukes all the good stuff too it nukes the 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 ragweed i'm not gonna go to the list it nukes everything all right it nukes everything to where it just stays bare dirt until they come in and and drill in their crop seeds so that means you're not gonna have a lot of vegetative cover in your fields the weeds that are around your property and around your field edges, depending on the weeds that they are, can blow into your food plots and can be a problem. If it's well taken care of ground, you probably are going to have less noxious weed species issues to deal with. You're going to have them. You'll have less of them. If, however, you go out and you walk the landscape and it is just choked out with nasty crap everywhere growing up in and around your, your corner. Okay, 
you probably have a significant weed load, weed seed load in any areas where you want to do your food plots. So when you go in there to do your food plots, I'm, I literally am right now, there's a, there's a, an adjacent neighbor that literally went and scratched in a food plot next to us that the landowner and I walked, kind of drove by, looked at it. We're like, Oh, good luck with that because it's going to be a nightmare for them. They just didn't, they just half-assed it and it didn't work. Okay. I'm telling you the nastier, weedier, the property you have, the more wheat and hemp is, an, is another good one. The, the more management problems you can have over time. It's just something to think about when you're purchasing a property. The other thing is there's one that's called windmill grass. Windmill grass is a, is a type of grass that you will see growing in ag fields. The only way to get rid of it is essentially disking that property or what they'll use as a, as a sweeper or a wiper. Basically, you can cut the, the root mass off that plant. The only way you're going to get rid of it is to plow that stuff up. If you're in an area where you're better off doing no-till, you're, you're going to want to do that once or twice over time. You, you gotta, you, you've got to control your windmill grass. Because windmill grass doesn't do a dang thing for wildlife. It really doesn't. But it can absolutely cause problems in your ag field. Again, if the ag property has been taken care of, you probably don't have as much of a problem with that. If you do have a problem with that, that's something that you ought to know. So that way, when you go out there and say, okay, I want someone to rent this ground. Well, if you want someone to go rent that ground and they walk out there and they'll say, well, we're only going to give you 25 to 30 bucks an acre for this ground. You're like, what are you talking about? I know other people are getting 40 to 50. Yeah, well, they're getting 40 to 50 because it's taken care of. It's good ground. If you've got a bunch of weed crap out there, obviously it's going to cost them more to take care of it. So you're not going to get the the money, the income off of that property like you could if it was well taken care of. You might want to know if that's what you're dealing with. Here's another thing about your bottoms. Is it full of brome? Is it is it full of smooth brome? Or is it taller vegetation? Canada wild rye, basin wild rye, or, you know, switchgrasses, blue stems, and that type of stuff. If, because a lot of these other, these places used to be grazed or they used to be farmed and then the, the, whatever the landowner, you know, 50 years ago, 80 years ago decided, eh, I'm not going to farm this anymore. They go and they, they put grass, they put smooth brome out there because they wanted grazing. Okay. You might have good grass. You look at it. You're like, oh, this is awesome. It's lush. There's no cheat grass and there's no weeds and everything else. I'm thinking in my mind, a chunk of ground that I have that I'm managing now, it is this entire chunk of the, of the creek bottom is nothing but brome. Well, it's nice because it's not weedy. It's nice because it doesn't have cheatgrass. Brome really doesn't do you any good for wildlife. It's not great nesting cover. It's not good bedding cover. It's not good forage. It really doesn't do you any good. It's not bad for cattle grazing. It's awesome if you've got horses. <coughs> but if, it, if your bottom is full, if these areas are full of brome, all right, just understand from a wildlife standpoint, that's not helping you any. You might want to know that before you put your earnest money down and you put uh, you, you put a uh, you put your um, <laughs> sign on the dotted line. All right. Um, <clears throat> here's another one. Now this one is going to be this one can be tricky because it can be difficult to find out. But your your adjacent landowners too. And I, I alluded to this uh, in the beginning. 
Adjacent landowners, goodness gracious, they can make or break whether or not you're going to be successful on your property. Especially, especially if you're if you're talking about small acreage. Now, if you are dealing with, so for instance, the same guy that bought that I'm talking about, the little scratched in the little food plot, he he hit he hit uh, he he was very strategic. He's got a good piece of ground because on one side of him, several hundred acres of managed ground that's well managed and taken care of, and then on the other side is me and several thousand acres of of really good managed ground. So his little tiny chunk is is in a, is in a good spot. However. Like I said, the other piece of ground that I, I know is on, it's for sale right now. I think it's 160 acres. You're thinking, wow, 160 acres. I can do something with that. Uh-huh. Good luck. Because the people that surround that are poaching, trespassing fools. And they are nasty people. To, I'm sorry. They're just nasty people to deal with. They're not friendly people to deal with. And so anybody that buys that chunk of ground, <clears throat> I'm sorry for you. You're going to have your work cut out. You're absolutely going to have your work cut out for you. And especially if you're talking about a small chunk and then you have that, good luck. So for instance, I just was, I just was consulting, uh, for a guy, uh, worked with him and just was looking, just, just talking about some, just looking at Google earth and just talking about some general concepts. And I, I zoomed in and right there, his neighbor right next door, here's a box blind. Here's a, here's a tree stand out in the right next, next to him. And I'm like, okay, well, let's take a look at that. It looks like here's an elevated box blind. He's like, oh yeah, by the way, they moved that elevated box blind. And now that box blind's right on our fence line. (laughs) Yeah. I know something about that. I've got an outfitter that leases the ground around a bunch of the ground that I manage. You want to know where their tree stands, bait piles and box blinds are? I don't think I have to answer that question for you. I've already, te- I've already teased about it and talked about it on my social media. Okay. So if you've got small acreage and you're going to try to develop, Oh, here's another one. Here's here's another one. So I was hired last year to work with a landowner that just recently purchased a piece of property. I believe again, it was 160 acre parcel. And when I went there and looked at it, the realtor that sold the parcel to him put in a food plot. But they put the food plot in at the far northwest corner of the property, right on the fence line, like as in literally at the extreme northwest corner of the property, right up against the fence lines. The property to the northwest of that was walk-in access, public hunting. Why in the world, why in the world would you put a food plot where public hunters can get the maximum benefit from it? Because the food plot was going to be suckering in deer from two other neighbors and they had to funnel down along and through this walk-in access. Why in the world should this landowner go to all of the cost and expense to maintain a food plot that most of his neighbors are going to benefit probably more than he will? Now, luckily, they did an alfalfa plot, which means it's better off used in the summer rather than the fall. But regardless... If you have a small acreage chunk and you want to develop it, you're really going to be beholden to what happens on your neighboring properties. And so if you go in and you look and you search and you see, <clears throat> goodness gracious, there this this chunk of ground seems to have, bo- in, on Google Earth, if it's been there for a while, you can see these. You can see the elevated box blinds. If they've got muddy blinds or whatever out there, you can see them. They, you can see them. They show up on the satellite image. 
Or if you go drive and you go look at your property, make sure you drive the, the, the region around you and you drive around your neighbors. Don't go trespass on your neighbors. Just at least drive the roads and see what you can see. Does it look, is there a, is there, is it posted by an outfitter or leased hunting or a hunt club? Is it walk-in access like public land next to you? If it's public land next to you and you've got a small chunk of ground, understand your, now there's things that you can do with a small acreage that can benefit you, especially if you're around places that have high levels of disturbance. You can trade, you know, you can create your property as a sanctuary maybe to where that's where all the animals pile into. But then that is going to mean you're going to have to be very careful how you utilize your piece of ground. But you really ought to spend some time trying to figure out who those neighbors are. Like I said, sometimes you're not going to know. Other times you at least can drive around and you can get an idea of how much hunting pressure is out there and the type. If it's leased by an outfitter, you can be sure it gets pounded most of the time. If it's leased by a hunt club, most of the time you can expect, okay, my neighbors hunt a bunch. If it's walk-in access, you can know you're going to have a lot of pressure on that adjacent ground. Here's the other part. Depending if it's walk-in access, just understand, and I and this is the reality, I'm sorry to say it, it's the truth. You're going to have trespass issues. You are going to need to put up, you're going to have to purple post your, your property or post it. You're going to have to maintain your fences. You probably ought to run some cameras in there. But most of the time, any let's just put it this way. Anybody that I've ever known and worked with that has land adjacent to walk-in access ground or public ground has a nightmare of an issue of trespassing. Just, I'm going to just end it there. Done. Okay? So just understand <laughs> When you're looking at a sale bill, they might not tell you this because they don't want to discourage you from buying that ground. They want you to buy the ground and they want you to buy the ground from a, with a premium price tag because their commission is riding on it and their reputation as a, as a realty agent that can move properties is riding on it. So when you, So one of the things you can do if you don't go out there and look at it, at least go to whatever state that you're looking at. If they have a, like Kansas has a walk-in hunting atlas, it's on the website. It's free. You can go and click on it and it shows you all the parcels that have walk-in access or public ground. See if a chunk is next to you. And then if there is a chunk next to you, what is it used for? Maybe it's only a turkey property and it's not a deer property. Okay, well, maybe that's one. Or maybe it's only a deer property and it's not a turkey property. Okay, well, that's one. Or maybe it's one of those properties that opens up in September and ends in May. You can do anything. Everybody's going to be in there for an extended period. Okay, you might want to know that. All right, so do, do the due diligence. Do the due diligence to make sure you know what you're buying. All right, and then one more thing. I see this all the time. Drives me absolutely, again, back crap crazy. <clears throat> You'll see it says on there, oh, and it, you know, 160 acres, it's got a pond. Really? A pond? It, do, it has a pond? Are we in an area that has a lot of rainfall 
And is that basin of water you're talking about in a drainage that has enough water to where that body of water, the the pond that you're talking about, is an actual deep functioning aquatic ecosystem that translates into actually being a pond, meaning there's aquatic life in that water. There's maybe fish in that water or can sustain fish in that water. You've got frogs in that water. You've got little invertebrates swimming around in that water. Maybe there's aquatic vegetation in that pond, quote unquote. Okay. If that's the case, right on. Kudos to you. You've got a pond. Or are we talking about a dry basin in an upland site that is nothing but a stock pond? It is literally in a... They they dammed up the bottom of a swale in their upper... In their upland area intended solely to trap some runoff from rain so their cattle had a place to drink. That stock pond goes dry three, four months out of the year. It's a mud hole. It's full of black flies and mosquitoes, and that's it. It's not going to hold fish. It doesn't, it does. It, it dries up. It's a stock pond. It's a pond for cattle. I cannot tell you the number of times I've seen a sale bill list a property that says pond on it. And you literally look at the, the, the Google Earth image and you can see the pond is not in any sort of corridor that has water running through it. It's literally in the middle of your grassland and it's, it's, the, it's the bottom end of, a, of, of an 80 acre basin of grass and it just dead ends. There's no standpipe. There's no overflow. It literally just dead ends. Why? Because it catches water, holds it. The cattle come in there and drink it and they move on. They crap all through it. And then when it gets dry, it evaporates and the whole thing goes dry. Okay. You're not buying a pond. You are not buying a pond. Come on. And then you'll have people that say, okay, I want to, I want to dig this out and develop it. If it's drying up in the summer already, it means it's not getting enough water to hold in the basin that it already has. So you digging it out ain't going to help you much. There's no flow through it. It's a dry land area. It's not a functioning ecosystem. You're not buying a pond. You're buying a water hole. That's it. So don't get suckered in to some of the things that you see on a sale bill because it's their They want you to buy it and they want you to pay a premium price because they're it benefits them financially. I can't, uh, sorry. I, it just frustrates me. It frustrates me because I see people all the time spend a lot of money on a chunk of ground and they, they, they walk out, you know, like the little emoji, little, little heart eyes, you know, they walk out with a big smile and heart eyes on their property. And then they walk out across there and they're like, okay, what do I got? Walking out on a property and saying, what do I got after you've already closed on it? That's the wrong time to ask, what do I got? I am the type of person that wants to walk out on a property. I'm the optimistic guy. Because even when I look at a piece of property, I've looked at them. I've looked at pieces of property. I'm like, there ain't no way in hell I'd ever even look at this property. 
and somebody's bought it and, and I'm like, okay, well, okay, let, let's, let's look at the good things. The good thing is, is you can do whatever the hell you want because you're going to start from scratch. All right. You're starting from scratch. So let's just build on, okay. We, you can do things. It just depends on how much money you have to spend and how much time you have. Cause that's the other thing I see all the time, absentee landowners and this, and this will get, I'll, I, I'll touch on it, but I'll save it because this is going to be a bigger discussion. And actually I'm, this discussion might be specific enough where I might just house it in the, um, row hunting resources website, because <clears throat> I think we can dive into some real specific weeds on specific management things that you need to, to know as a landowner. But there's a lot of landowners that are absentee landowners that buy a piece of ground and they want to do food plots or they, they say, oh, I want to manage my ground. We all want to manage our ground. We all, it's fun. It is absolutely fun. The problem is life. Life. Life gets in the way. Our kids get sick. They've got a, a, a soccer tournament. They got, they got a, a softball tournament. They've, they've got, oh, we got a family reunion. Oh, we're going to go on vacation. Oh, my job needs me to travel. Oh, geez, I got laid off. Or, or And so when you're dealing with an absentee property, there are going to be some things that you need to take care of in a timely manner if you want to develop the property. If you want to do food plots, you're going to need to manage them, especially in my area, simply because we have so many noxious weeds that are going to come up that must be addressed. Otherwise, you just create a, 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 a your your the the efforts of your food plot are going to fail. Now, if you're like some of these people, <clears throat> where all you care about is social media and and what you can pretend to be on social media. Oh, look at what we went and planted this uh, food plot. There. Okay, great. So you've got a picture or a video of you going out and quote unquote putting in a food plot. Uh huh. Show me that food plot in August. Show me that food plot in December. Then we'll evaluate the success of your food plot. All right, but if you're if all you care about is the is the grip and grin, if all you care about is the image, okay, then fine. Maybe you don't need to worry about this stuff. Go out there, just half-ass it, just wing stuff in, get your picture, go. Hey, I don't care. It is it's your property. You can do whatever you want with it. You're fine. But if you're the type of person that actually wants to do something beneficial on the landscape especially in this neck of the woods, you better spend some time understanding how your area operates and what you need to do to tailor your efforts to maximize your success on the landscape in your area. But it's going to take you, you're going to have to get out. You're going to have to spray. You're going to have to go out. You're going to have to plant. You're going to have to fertilize. You're going to have to, there's activity, you're, clearing fences, clearing brush, clearing. There's stuff on the landscape that you're probably going to have to do. And I've seen repeatedly where people get off on the right foot. They start and they're like, this is awesome. And they start going. And then all of a sudden money becomes an issue. All of a sudden time becomes an issue. And all of a sudden things happen, things happen, things happen. And pretty pretty soon, all of a sudden you're, you're several months or a year or two years out of it. And you're like, oh crap. 
Now I have a bigger issue. Now I have a bigger management problem on my hands than I did when I first started. I've got to start from scratch or I, whatever. Okay. Understand if you, if you're buying a project property, have a plan to work on that project diligently. If you are diligent with it, it's, uh, it's the exact same proper prior preparation prevents piss poor performance. There it is, right? We've all heard that proper prior preparation. Part of that preparation is looking ahead, knowing what you need to do, having a plan. And then part of that plan is a schedule. What do you need to do when? And literally, what is your window? What's what's your window of opportunity to accomplish that said project? When you're dealing with cheatgrass, for instance, I'll just give you this one. If you're dealing with cheatgrass, it's right now. It's it's late fall, and right now, you can't look at cheatgrass and go, okay, well, shoot, I can't get out there. But uh, uh, my I I you know what? I think my schedule. I think I could I could probably get out there like mid or late May. I should be able to get out there. Eh, wrong answer. Cheat grass has already come and gone and done. It's, it's already gone and set seed. You've got to wait another year. It doesn't matter. Now you can address it in the fall. Maybe it doesn't matter what you want to do right now. It's already left you behind. You're done. You're done. Or maybe you want to do a food plot, a summer food plot, and you need to go out and prep the soil. Okay. Well, if you're going into an area that has nothing but weeds and you've got to clear that area, how are you, how are you going to do it? Are you, you, are you going to no-till? Are you going to just disc it up? If you're going to disc it up, I've talked about this on my Instagram channel and my IGTV page. Um, if you're going to disc it up, well, when you disc it, you're going to, you're going to fluff up that top layer of soil and you're going to cut off that top layer of soil from the subsoil or subsoil moisture underneath that. Well, you better darn well have some rain come in. Otherwise, your seed's going to sit there and it's going to be wasted. So you you go out there and you mow and you disc and you do all this stuff and you put the seed in the ground. And then what? The seed that you put in the ground didn't come up because you didn't have the soil moisture. But guess what's going to come up? Your hemp is going to come up. Herbicide-resistant pigweed. Maybe velvet leaf, hemp, cheatgrass, kochia, Russian thistle. Now what do you have to deal with? All right? So, <clears throat> all right, I've rambled on enough. I think that's good enough. So there you go. There's the first installment of off the cuff because this is something I just, re- the reason why it really it resonated today was because I just went out to this new piece of ground and uh, we're looking at doing some projects on uh, fixing a culvert on this property and just looking at the volume of water going down through the, cul- the down through this property. And um, it's significant. And so when we, when we're looking at talking about, uh, figuring a solution for access ac- uh, across the property into different areas, um, this is going to be a project. So for instance, this is a great example. And this is one that, uh, <clears throat> we knew this going into the, into the negotiations of the property. So this was not anything that we didn't know about. Um, cause I, I raised this issue to the prospective landowner prior to him making an offer. But when you look at the air, the satellite image and you look at the sale bill, it looks like you've got several 
different ag fields on the property that are in production agriculture. One complex of ag fields is on the west uh, on the on the west side of the the well, west or side. How, it's on one side. A bunch of the ag fields are on one side of the river, the creek corridor, and then the other ag fields are on the other side of the creek corridor. Well, I walked out there and looked at it. There's no way right now to get any ag equipment from the one side of the creek bottom to the other. The way the property has been parsed out on several uh, land sales over the past couple of years, those ag fields are now essentially isolated on the one side of the river and there's no good access. There's a culvert there and there's a there's a access that you can get a pickup truck across. There's no way in hell you're going to get a big tractor. There's no way you're going to get a combine or a grain cart. So how so if we have if we're going to buy this ground and it has this ag piece over there, how are we going to farm that ground? Now, maybe we just turn it into wildlife habitat. We can do that. And then the culvert becomes a non-issue. I can get my equipment over across there, a pickup truck or whatever. You can get some equipment. You could we could convert. We could convert that whole ag field into native habitat. We could. But if we're going to keep it in agriculture, and in this case there's a there it, there could be a benefit to do so. Well, we, we've got to be able to get there. How do we get there? Right now, there's no easement to get there. And right now, we don't have the, the, the culvert to connect the crops, that we're, the, the, the ag ground that we can get to, to the ag ground that we want to get to. Well, that was part of the deliberation process that this new landowner, he said, yeah, that's not a problem. I've got assets. I've got friends. He's got means in a a way that he can remedy that situation. For him, it actually turned out where it's 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 not a problem. However, if someone didn't know that, you, there's no way you would know that by looking at the sale bill. No way at all. And so you buy it and you think, oh, this is going to be awesome. First of all, you to look at that and you're like, this is going to be a turnkey property. I'm going to go out there and hunt it. And then you walk on the ground and say, goodness gracious, they they graze the ag pretty good and to where the, the river bottom is, is somewhat open. Well, okay. And now I can't even get to the ag field that I wanted to get to. Well, geez, that would have been nice to know, right? All of these things you need to pay attention to. Please, people, please, please, please pay attention to it. Um, a little due diligence on the front end is going to pay huge dividends later on. Not in, not only in your, your financial expenditure on the property, but how about we just talk about your overall enjoyment of the property? It's like buying a used car. If you buy a used car online in uh, sight unseen and then you go out there and you and you do all the transaction and everything and you go out there and you go to start it and it doesn't want to start and then you get halfway down the finally get it started you get down halfway down the road and the engine block just falls out through the bottom of the of the vehicle. Are you happy with your purchase at this point? I think not. Versus if you actually went and looked at the vehicle and you went, you popped the hood and you looked underneath it and you had somebody who knew what they were doing from a mechanical standpoint that crawled underneath it, started it up, listened to everything, and they went through it and they went, man, 
yeah, this is this is this is a good car. This is this is good. And then you go and you buy it and you start it up and you drive it for the next 150,000 miles and never have a problem. Are you happy with your purchase at that time? I think so. All right. Buying land is the same. You have got to walk it. You've got to look at it. You've got to know what you're looking at so you know what you are buying. All right, I'm done. As always, um, again, this podcast right now, I'm working for you guys. We don't have, hey, if if you're a a business and you've got gobs of cash you want to throw at me to advertise, hey, hey, let's talk. We can do that. But for right now, I'm working for you guys. I'm working for our subscribers, all right, on the website. We put a bunch of stuff on there, and I'm going to continue to build some stuff on there. And there's plenty of ways that you can support just this, even this podcast if you want to. You can go to SoundCloud. There's a little there's a little tool that you can help support the podcast if you want. Anyway, talk to me. I work for you guys. I appreciate all the support everybody has been giving me over the years, especially all of our subscribers and our members. Um, if you need help with any of this stuff, just just call, just send me a a message on Instagram or Facebook. Or send me a, an email. You can get the contact email at Row Hunting Resources off the website. Um, or you can just use that contact at rowhuntingresources.com. Contact at rowhuntingresources.com. R-O-E huntingresources.com. If you want me to look at something, I can do that for you. If you need suggestions on who to call, or I, I can I can at least help you with that. All right? Because um, I want you guys to... Be happy in your purchases and not buy something and then just, oh my gosh, fall apart on it. But anyway, um, after that, if you guys haven't already followed me on Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff, you can YouTube, you can always find me on Row. Any, just, just type in Row Hunting Resources. It's going to come up. I try to keep it all consistent. That way it's easy for people to find. All right, I'm going to sign off. It's time for dinner. Uh, hopefully that made sense. Hopefully you got some benefit out of it. And if you have any questions, by all means, let me know. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you guys soon.